you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 52 through 59 shortly. Last week, uh, as we spoke about the importance of revelation and the importance of God giving us a revealing of himself through his word, that we don't come to God through our own wisdom, we don't come to God through our own uh, right thinking or rational thought, we don't come to God through our own experience. I quoted somebody by the name of Oliver Thomas in USA Today, and I wasn't terribly thrilled with the gentleman. Uh, He was downplaying the importance of revelation for understanding and knowing who and what God is. Today I want to quote from that exact same article, but I want to tell you that he is right fundamentally in what he says here. Early on in that article, he says this, here's the corner that we've painted ourselves into, talking about the difficulties that Christians are having. The Bible says it. This is a quote that he is giving in the lips of Christians. The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. He is undoubtedly both right and wrong in that. We do believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, and so we can rightly confess the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. But that doesn't quite settle it, because it depends on what we mean by the Bible says it. Because the Bible says a whole bunch of things that we would rightly interpret differently than what the literal words of that phrase might mean. We are not those who practice literalism. We don't take every word of God for the most precise thing that it could possibly mean. As a matter of fact, if we do that, we are not only faithless Christians, but we end up contradicting ourselves in innumerable places. For instance, just earlier in the book of John, in John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus tells us that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is spirit. But all the way back in the book of Exodus, after God has brought his people through the Red Sea, Moses is able to look out at the people and sing a song where he says this, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. He has chosen officers. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Well, I mean, which is it? Is God spirit or does he have a big old mighty right hand? We want to be literal. We want to accept what the Bible has to say. We've got to accept both of those things. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, of course it's not. We would come back and we would say, well, Moses is singing a song. And anyone who has ever sung songs, anyone who's ever known anything about language understands that songs often use metaphors. This is a metaphor. God is indeed spirit. There is God who has taken on the body of our Lord Jesus Christ as he has become fully human. But God the Father is not fully human. Mormons are wrong when they think that God the Father has a body and he literally has a strong right hand. He does not. It is a metaphor to help us understand. We conservatives, however, theologically speaking conservative, often want to interpret the Bible literally, but we oftentimes have no idea what that word is supposed to mean. Summoning my inner Chris Traeger, this is literally the most abused word that you can possibly have in the English language. People don't understand what the word literally means, so much that Inigo Montoya is seeking us out to help us explain We don't interpret the Bible literally. We interpret it faithfully. That's a much more helpful term for what we are supposed to do. The Bible is nothing besides communication. God reveals himself to us through normal patterns of human speech and writing. And so we interpret the Bible as we interpret anything else. 
It is chocked full of metaphors. It's chocked full of hyperbole and exaggeration. And it matters that we understand it when it speaks this way. And today we're coming to an incredibly hard statement of Jesus. And we know that it's a difficult statement of Jesus because we read it and we think, man, that's difficult. And then we read a little bit further and we hear his disciples say, Jesus, that's difficult. They literally say this in verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They themselves admit, we don't get it, Jesus. So we need to get it, though. Let us read what these difficult words are, beginning in verse 52. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of our Lord. To understand this, we're going to talk about the two elements separately as we try to understand what it means for Jesus to say, you need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about the bread and the body. The bread and the body. What in the world does Jesus mean in verse 54 when he says that we must feast on his flesh? It's a really strong way to put something. What does he mean when he says we must feast on his flesh? To get a grip on how Christians have treated this throughout church history, we're going to go to something that I don't believe I've ever read from in here, and I would doubt highly that any other human standing in this pulpit has ever read from, and that is the Council of Trent. The reason why no one has read from that is because that is a Roman Catholic document. It was the anti-Reformation document. After Martin Luther and Eurox Zwingli and other reformers have come up, the Catholic Church said, you know what? We, we really don't have a comprehensive understanding of what we believe, and it's time that we kind of set this stuff down. And so they gathered from 1545 to 1563 in order to set down Roman Catholic theology over these issues, and especially over contested issues. And so in the 13th chapter, they write about the Eucharist, which we understand as the Lord's Supper. And they define the Eucharist, they define the Lord's Supper, and specifically this idea of eating the flesh of Jesus Christ this way. This is from the Council of Trent, the 13th chapter. By the consecration of the bread and of the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, which conversion is by the Holy Catholic Church suitably and properly called transubstantiation. And these sessions, as they often did at the end of them, they included anathemas or curses or condemnations on people who would step themselves against the Catholic teaching. In the first canon, we read this, if anyone denies 
It says denieth. If anyone denieth that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ, but saith that he is only therein as a sign or in a figure or virtue, let him be anathema. So this is what the Catholic Church is saying. They will gather together and a priest will overlook the blood or he will overlook the bread and he will overlook the wine and he will consecrate it. And the moment that he consecrates it, that bread will change into the body of Jesus Christ and the wine will change into the blood of Jesus Christ. And what they mean is there is no bread left. Listen to what he says, what it says. It says the whole substance of the wine changes into the substance of his blood. The whole substance of the bread changes into his body. There is no bread left there. It looks like bread. It smells like bread. It tastes like bread. But to a Catholic, there is no bread there. There is only the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no wine there. There is only the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the whole idea of transubstantiation means. Trans being change, substantiation meaning the substance thereof. It changes substance. This transformation is based in part on the passage we are reading today and in those famous passages from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. As he's setting before the elements of the Lord's Supper, he breaks bread and he says, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And he also says, this is my blood. Taking these passages very seriously and very literally and mixing it with an extremely healthy dose of Aristotelian philosophy, which we don't have time to get into this morning, you're welcome. <laughs> this basic doctrine of transubstantiation has come out of this. Now, before we get too far into dealing with transubstantiation, I want to tell you four reasons why we shouldn't deny this. Okay? that you are prone to, that I've heard many Protestants speak against this and speak against it wrongly, and these are reasons you should not have for rejecting this particular doctrine. First, don't reject it simply because it's Catholic. Some people have this like magnetic pole problem with Catholicism. And as soon as something is Catholic, and it's something that Catholics do that we don't do, we look at it and we say, that's, that's got to be junk, it's Catholic. And they reject it solely because it's Catholic, not because it has any basis in the word or not because they should, simply because it's Catholic. They are indeed throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Listen, even Martin Luther, the staunchest reformer in the church, wasn't going to do that. When he was put on trial, they lined up all of his writings and they looked at him and they said, you need to recant of these things. Luther looked at the prosecutor and he said, you don't understand, I can't recant. I can't recant these, not because I think that they're all true. I can't recant them because you and I both know that there are things in there that are true. I've written on the Trinity. I've written exegesis of the Psalms. I can't trash those and neither can you. I can't recant of them because I'm recanting of something that you and I both agree are good at. Luther knew there was a huge, huge amount of things that they had in common that he could not recant of. Now, that didn't mean he didn't write a lot of stuff in those books that the Roman Catholics couldn't stomach. But it did mean that he wasn't going to get rid of Roman Catholicism simply because it was Roman Catholic, and neither should we. Secondly, don't reject it because it's frankly weird. Okay? 
If it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, it must be the Lord's body and his blood. Okay? We look at the, the bread and we, th- we say, man, it, it looks like bread, it tastes like bread, it smells like bread, and Roman Catholics say, yeah, but it's really the body. That is weird. Okay? But friends, that is not a good reason to reject it. You believe, every single one of you who believes in Jesus Christ, believes in enough weird stuff to fill up the volumes of the Bible and then beyond. You believe that the all-creating God became a human being. That that which is ineffable and spirit took on a body. There are plenty of people around the world who look at that and are like, that's weird. Go talk to a Muslim and ask them how weird they find the Trinity. They're going to tell you that, that is weird. Three gods, one God, I don't get it, that's weird. Stop basing whether or not you will accept something on the basis of whether it's weird or not. It doesn't have any bearing on the truthfulness of it. Yes, this might be a little weird, but friends, there are plenty of things that we agree with, that we accept, and that we think are important truths that are weird to others. Third, don't deny this simply because it's mysterious. Part of the weirdness is the fact that we don't understand how something that looks like bread, smells like bread, tastes like bread, could actually not be bread. Now, again, this is where that Aristotelian philosophy comes in, but simply because it's mysterious, don't reject it. Because it doesn't make sense to your mouth or it doesn't make sense to your head doesn't mean that you ought to reject it for that. Not one of us has plumbed the depths of the incarnation or the trinity or the atonement. Not one of us can make sense of how God is fully responsible and or fully sovereign over all of us and fully responsible are men who sin against him. Because we can't do that, we have to hold these things as mysteries. No problem with having mysteries. If it's true, it's true, even if it's mysterious. And lastly... Let me be very clear on this one. Do not deny it because it's not scriptural. Simply because their explanation of what's happening here cannot be found in scripture doesn't mean that they're not trying to be scriptural. We have a whole bunch of reasons to stand against Roman Catholic people. We have a whole bunch of reasons to say that they do not handle scripture well. We think that scripture is the final authority. This is what the reformers lived for, is sola scriptura. It is our last authority is the Bible. We can do nothing else besides what the Bible gives us and tells us to do. But here, of all places, of all places, the Roman Catholics are demonstrating how sincerely they take the word of God. They might not do it everywhere, but they do it here. They're reading what Jesus says, and they're saying, that must be true. Let's figure out how that can be true. They're reading him saying, this is my body, and eat my flesh. And they're saying, this has to be true. How can, how can this be true? The doctrine of transubstantiation helps to make that true. Nor, friends, do we, are we to think that it's that far removed from Protestant thinking. See, Martin Luther had a problem with the Eucharist. He had a problem with the Mass. He had problems with the Mass and that if this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ being consecrated here, there's, there's something of a sacrifice of Jesus being done again. He has a problem with the Mass and thinking that it's a meritorious work that is being given to people. But you know what he didn't have a problem with really, truly, deep down in his heart? Transubstantiation. He hated it because he hated Aristotle. But he didn't hate it because he thought it was evil. As a matter of fact, his doctrine of sacramental union is but like a quarter step to the right of where transubstantiation is. 
Whereas transubstantiation thinks that that bread in its substance becomes the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, Luther just said, well, let's get rid of that whole changing of the substance thing and let's just say that it is both bread and body. Mysterious, mysteriously, sacramentally. It somehow becomes him. They're, they are in union together. When you eat the bread, you are truly eating the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you drink the wine, you are truly drinking the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the wine isn't replaced. It's not the substance of the wine is still there, but somehow Jesus' body is there as well. He didn't believe necessarily in consubstantiation, but some sort of sacramental union, some sort of mysterious union that Lutheran theologians are rightly rightly call a mystery, right? That's hardly different than transubstantiation. The question becomes, not is it scriptural, but how do we interpret these words? We don't believe that the body of the Lord is really truly present in the bread when we take the Lord's Supper. But if we are going to deny that, we have to figure out what Jesus is talking about here and how we are to understand it. I think that there's an easy way to understand it. He's not being serious. Well, he's being serious, but he's certainly not being literal. Jesus doesn't mean for you to take these things literally. And there is numerous points that we can look at to make sure that we are understanding his words here correctly. So why can we believe that Jesus said these things, but he didn't mean for us to take them literally? How do we know that Jesus is being hyperbolic or exaggerating? Hyperbolic just means it's an exaggeration that is exaggerated even further. How do we know that he's doing that inside of a metaphor? We know that for at least five reasons that I'll give you this morning. And I know you're running out of paper, but that's okay, there's a back. First, Jesus often exaggerated. Jesus exaggerated all the time. It was a hallmark of his teaching not only was a hallmark of his teaching teaching in parables, but when he taught straightforwardly, he almost always exaggerated stuff. Matthew 7, 4 through 5. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? First, you hypocrite, take the speck, or excuse me, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If you read that, friend, and you think, well, I can, I can judge all of my friends and relatives because I don't have a huge log sticking out of my eye. You have failed interpretation and you need to go back and think about it again. It's clearly an exaggeration. It's clearly a picture meant to drive home the point. Jesus does this time and time and time again. His teaching is almost always exaggerating and almost always hyperbolic. Almost always might be pushing it, but it is routinely that way. Secondly, Jesus often used metaphors for himself in the Gospel of John. Jesus here calls himself the bread of life. He will in other places call himself the door. Lest you think that Jesus has had hinges put on himself in his resurrection, I don't think that we take him literally there. There's good reasons for us not to. He is also calling himself the true vine. We don't think that he's actually a vine. And lest you misunderstand him, when he calls himself the good shepherd, that too is a metaphor because you are not literal sheep. Meh. You don't do that. <laughs> Unless you do that and you eat grass and you've got white or black curly hair all over you, you're not a sheep. You're people. It's a metaphor. Jesus oftentimes uses these I am statements as metaphors. He doesn't mean it really. Third, and I think importantly, I have searched and I can't find one example of somebody trying to bite and eat Jesus Christ. And that sounds funny and it sounds ridiculous, but if they took him literally, it doesn't seem like it's that far-fetched. As a matter of fact, 
if Jesus stands before them in his resurrection body, is a willing at the end of John to feed them fish, and then gives them the symbol of bread. Why the mystery? The dude's right there. He's right there. You don't need the mystery of the bread and the mystery of the wine. And if Catholic and Lutheran theologians are right and Jesus' body is everywhere present, there's no reason to have those either. He can manifest himself there for you to eat, roasted. Fourth, in the synoptics, Jesus offers them his body before it's crucified. He's sitting there with them, in the flesh, contained. His body's not falling apart. It's not spilling blood all over the place. And he says, this is my body. There is no disciple sitting at that table who thought, huh, I wonder if he got a nail in there or something. Like, they, they realize this is a metaphor. This is a metaphor. They realize when he says, this is my blood. They're not disgusted by that. There's no, this is a hard statement, Jesus. I don't really want to eat this bread. What did you say was in this bread? They don't do any of that. They understand that it's a metaphor. It is impossible to think that they were eating his body literally when he was sitting right there. But lastly and more importantly, the context in John overwhelmingly points at this being a metaphor and an incredibly, incredibly helpful metaphor for us. Look at verse 47, which is actually prior to what we read today. In verse 47, he starts by having a truly, truly statement. And so this is the thing he says, I want you to hang on to. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Then he says, I am the bread of life. And then, then he really starts to push on his flesh being the bread. It is only after he says this in verse 51 that he comes back and he says this. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So he says, if you believe, you will have eternal life. And if you eat, you will live forever. If that sounds similar to you, there's probably a good reason why. Because they're very similar. In other words, to believe is to eat. It's a metaphor. It's a very helpful and a very poignant metaphor. But it's a metaphor. As he continues to press through it, he then presses on them to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Look at how he then ends it. So he begins by talking belief. Look at how he ends these statements in verse 62 and 63, which we didn't read earlier. They were grumbling about this, and Jesus says, Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Now, the Spirit giving life part is fine. We'll get to that next week. But the flesh is no help at all. He is quite clearly not talking about his own flesh, which is an incredible amount of help for us. He is quite clearly talking about our flesh. Now, if Jesus said, you need to physically put my body into your mouth, and then turns around and says, the flesh is of no help, eating is a fleshly thing. You can't eat something and not think that it has fleshy interpretation to it. If it's literally taking his body into your mouth that gives you life, the flesh avails much because that is the way you get eternal life. But when he says the flesh doesn't help you at all, he's saying that taking and putting things into your mouth is not actually helping you. And then what does he finish it off with in verse 64? But there are some of you who do not eat. That's not what he says. He says there are some of you who do not believe. The point is eating is believing or 
To understand believing right, you have to understand that you are eating his flesh. It's a metaphor. And so, we don't believe at all that the body and the blood of the Lord are somehow changed in the bread and the wine. We are right to insist that Jesus doesn't mean for us to think that these are literal things, that we have to literally eat his body. So what does it mean for us to believe in Jesus? That's what this is all pointing to. What does it mean for you to believe in me? Why does he give us these words? Because you are what you eat. You take his body into you. The Lord's Supper always represented the death and the resurrection of Christ. There's, there's no way around that. And John, although he moves the Lord's Supper dialogue here way forward in the ministry of Jesus, is doing so to play off of the synoptics. And if we understand that, then we have to understand this verse and these verses in light of what the synoptics say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's, Jesus is breaking bread and he's saying, this is my body broken It is clearly talking about his crucifixion, his giving his life, his body as a sacrifice for our sins. To eat bread means that we believe that Christ died for our sins on the tree and that his death literally becomes what we are. Just like when you take bread into your mouth, you get the nutrients and the calories from it. So that when you believe, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death becomes yours. You are believing in him. You are taking him in. His body is becoming yours. That's why he presses down upon believing that the flesh is the bread. To believe in him is to believe that his death is now yours. Thus, the Lord's Supper is just an absolutely beautiful picture of what it means for us to believe. It means that we are not just believing that Jesus is a good guy who did nice things. It means that we are believing that his body is crushed and broken on a tree and that it is our death as well. That just as we become the things of the bread, so we become the death of Christ. It is our death. Look at verse 56. Jesus says that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That is, by believing in him, you are united with Christ. Just like when you eat bread, it is united to you. It is a metaphor and it's pressing home the importance of belief. But friends, I want to pause for a second and make sure you realize that at no point in time should you ever consider that the Lord's table is simply a symbol. It is not simply a symbol. The act of taking the supper is nothing less than an act of faith. You are acting out what you said that you've believed. It is the physical appearance of a spiritual act. You spiritually believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for your sins, and so you physically act upon that by taking the Lord's body into your mouth. By doing that, our faith is really and truly represented in the physical appearance of eating and drinking. Which means, when Jesus says... If you believe, you get eternal life. The very act of eating that is a means of grace by which, through your faith, God gives you eternal life. It is not a mere symbol. It can never be a mere symbol because it is uniquely tied to faith. That same faith that gives you eternal life is being demonstrated and acted upon when you take the Lord's body into your mouth. That doesn't mean that you get all of the benefits of the Lord's broken body regardless of if you believe or not. And it doesn't mean that it's a mysterious thing. It doesn't mean that it's mystical. It doesn't magically happen to you. It happens because you are acting in faith. It is always tied to faith. 
Christ gives you grace through faith. And so it is no mere symbol, but through our faith, it is an aspect of God's grace to us. That allows us to turn very briefly to the wine and the blood. The second part of this is simply going to be talking about the wine and the blood. Now, much of what is said above, obviously, in the same sort of metaphor, applies to the wine and the blood, that you are not to literally drink the, the blood of Jesus Christ. But what is interesting is that Jesus would use this as a metaphor at all. You see, cannibalism, eating of others' flesh, is, oddly enough, never actually prohibited in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that God approves of you doing it. It just means it's not prohibited in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when we read of cannibalism, it is always associated with a curse that God will bring upon his people. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 53, You shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. When you disobey me and I bring my punishment upon you, so bad will be your plight that you will turn on your children and eat them. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what Jeremiah 19.9 says. And you can tell Jeremiah has read Deuteronomy. He says this, the Lord says, I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. It is always a mark of God's deepest cursing on his people. But it's never prohibited. But you know what is prohibited? Many times, over and over again, drinking blood. Eating meat with blood in it, strictly forbidden. Why Christ would pick that as a metaphor is strange. As a matter of fact, probably the lengthiest part where this is explained to us is in Leviticus 17, which is directly after Yom Kippur, which is the description of the Day of Atonement that Jesus' own sacrifice is patterned after. And when we have that in Leviticus 17, we read there that if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against the person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For, verse 11 reads, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. He says, you cannot eat, and the moment that you do, I will set my face like stone against you, and I will cut you off. The penalty of eating an animal's blood is nothing short of death. And yet Jesus stands up and says almost the opposite. He says, if you don't drink my blood, you won't live. If you want eternal life, you have to drink my blood. So why does he say that? Many cultures have insisted that animal blood is what gives them life. This is not a, an unknown phenomenon. They think that because blood is sort of life, that if you drink another animal's life, you get their life force or something like that. It's almost as if God is counteracting that. You see, in the fall, as we've talked about, there is this great inversion that instead of looking at God as God, we instead look at the creation as God. And one of the most clear evidences of this is the idea that we can get life from animals. The idea at all that our life is dependent upon us killing and eating animals or even getting it from the ground. 
And God is trying to make clear throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all the way through that you don't get life from the things of the earth. That is the inversion. You're putting animals and plants where God belongs. You get life only from God. And so you cannot ever think that you're going to get life from this animal. That's its life. And when its life is spent, it's gone. What I do allow you to do is to use it for atonement. In other words, your death is paid by that animal. And when that animal pays for your death, then I will give you life. Even the aspect of atonement is a picture of God giving life to his people. I will not kill you. I will not destroy you. I will allow you to live yet another year. But even in that atonement, that animal's blood was never as effective as it needed to be. It could not fully and finally take away our sin. And God's allowing of that animal's blood to simply cover sin was only a partial remedy, the remedy that Jesus takes away. So that blood was a reminder that there was a debt to be paid and that blood was a reminder that life is only found in God. And what do we have in Jesus Christ? Spilling his blood on the altar for our sins and giving us life from the very heart of God. That is not just blood. It is the blood of God. And it is the only blood that you can ever drink and live forever. He is uniting himself with you by allowing you to take blood in. Listen to how many times Jesus talks like this. Verse 53, you have no life in you. Verse 57, you will live because of me. Verse 56 is again the turning point. I will remain in you and you in me when you eat my body and drink my blood. There is no life for you in the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Jesus Christ is life and life eternal. Completely throughout scripture, especially in the New Testament, we have this reference to the beauty and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It purifies our conscience in Hebrews 9. It is granting us confidence before God that we can stand before a holy God in Hebrews 10. In 1 John 1, 7, Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sin. In Revelation 1, 5, it frees us from our sins. In Revelation 12, we conquer over Satan by the blood of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it is our ransom from the futile ways that we have inherited from our forefathers. The blood of animals is in its life, or the, the, the life of an animal is in its blood. But that life is always mortal, it is always feeble, and it cannot give you what you need. The blood of Jesus Christ will always give you what you need. You need to entrust yourself to it and its power. You need to entrust yourself to the bread of Jesus Christ and his life-giving brokenness on the cross. We don't just symbolize our faith when we eat the Lord's Supper. Yeah, we truly believe that it is the gospel pictured, and even as we've just now heard the gospel preached. But for those who partake, for those who truly believe, it is more than just a symbol. Taking the bread and the body is a clear act of faith, a living out of our faith, that we believe Christ has indeed taken on our sins and given us his life. There is eternal life in that bread and in that wine for those who believe. So, friends, take the bread when we have it and eat it and drink it. Do so in faith knowing that the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who spilled his blood and gave his body to be broken did so so that you might have eternal life. Let us pray. 
Father, we are thankful for your word, and we are thankful for your body and your blood. We are thankful that Jesus Christ has given himself for these things. His brokenness and the spilling of his blood was nothing less than our salvation and indeed our resurrection from life to death. Lord, you have done a great and mighty thing for us. What can we say to you? What words can be formed to help us give utterance to the greatness of who you are and what you have done through your servant, Jesus Christ? Even as our song now rises to you, it is feeble and weak and cannot reach the heights it needs to in order to make sure that we explain rightly who you are. But we offer it to you nevertheless. For in light of your great work, we can do nothing but stand in utter amazement. We pray, Father, that you hear our song, that it is acceptable to you through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.